Welcome to Non-Obvious with my very good friend, Hugh Hansen. Well, welcome. Our first guest, uh, I mean, our guest today uh, in our podcast is Etienne San De Acedo. I hope I, I may not say that exactly right, but that's uh, very welcome. And uh, we've known each other for a number of years and uh, uh, spoken about various things. But today we're going to try to be a little more systematic uh, and going through a lot of things about you, the Inta, and the world of trademarks. But first, let's do a little personal stuff. Where were you born? San Sebastián in northern Spain. And what did you do as a, as a boy? You went to school in northern Spain? I did go to school to, in northern Spain. Uh, that was the time. San Sebastián is a tiny city in uh, northern Spain, quite near from the French border. It's part of the Basque Country. It's a beautiful city. For foodies, it's probably the city that has more Michelin stars per square foot. Uh, it's it's a gorgeous city. Uh, at the time, it had some issues with you know terrorism from the Basque separatists. So I lived there around eleven years, and I had a great time, and I have great memories about that time. So you were a terrorist. <laughs> probably my parents would think so about me. Yeah. Uh... Okay, uh, how, so for 11 years, then you moved? Yeah, then we moved, uh, you know, the family moved uh, precisely because my dad was, uh, you know, threatened by the terrorists. Uh, I mean, mm. he was a kind of target for them. And so we had to move either to France, where my mother was uh, originally from, or southern Spain, because at the time, even, you know, Madrid it was not safe enough for, you know, people that would leave the Basque Country because of separatism. Right. And we ended in Alicante, which is southern Spain, because, uh, you know, my mother wanted, you know, her three boys to go to a kind of French school and then be able to go to university in the same city. I mean, okay, so growing up, how many languages did you know? Uh, well, basically uh, Spanish, French, of course, you know, being fluent in both of them. And then, you know, I uh, learned English. Probably when? with more kind of British accent at when, the time. When did you learn English? I probably started learning English, well, around that time when I was eight, nine years old. And then, you know, I went to, you know, my parents sent me to uh, the UK a few times, you know, summertime to, you know, improve my English. And but that was unusual for a young child at that point, wasn't it, to well, be learning English? That or not really, not no? really, no. Okay. I think, you know, I'm... I would like to think that I'm not too old, but I'm getting older, so, you know, no, it wasn't. All right, so growing up, you knew three languages. Yep. Uh, French and Spanish, you knew equally well. Yep. Did you have a preference? Not really. I mean, I probably, you know, I, I went to school into, you know, French system, my man being French, but at the same time, I was living, you know, all time in Spain, so they were equally important to me. So what did you speak at home? What do I speak at home now with my no, children? Then, then. then uh, it was French with my mom. It was Spanish with my dad. And with my siblings, it was starting French, ending Spanish, vice versa, whatever. I could see actually a, a need for therapy in that family. If you, <laughs> if, if you had mom and dad in the room, what yeah. would you speak, depending on who you were speaking to? Yeah, basically, yes, because they both would understand the other language. So, you know, it would... Either, either language would work. 
Okay, so as a child, uh, you're now, where are you now at eight or 11? Yeah, I was 11 at the time. In, in uh, Alicante. We moved to Alicante when I was 11, yeah. Okay, and how long were you there? Well, quite a few years, you know, I finished, you know, uh, high school there, then I went to university in Alicante. I did the, the, the law faculty in Alicante. And uh, then I did an LLM in uh, European law uh, in Brussels at the uh, ULB. And then decided to move back to Spain and I went to Barcelona to work for a law firm. So I started there my kind of, you know, private practice. What type of practice was that? Uh, it was mostly, it was uh, competition law and it was some IP law. And that was the first time I got, you know, in touch with, uh, with IP, which obviously, you know, I liked at the time. Okay. Um, and how long were you with the law firm? I stayed there about a year. And then, you know, I decided to move back to Alicante because I had the opportunity to start, you know, kind of helping or working at a university at the law faculty as a kind of, you know, a junk professor. And, uh, and so I decided to move back to Alicante to take that role and at the same time work with, with another firm in Alicante. Uh, and then, you know, I spent probably around three to four years there in that firm. And then I moved into another firm and then I finally moved into EUIPO where I did spend almost 15 years. In him. Enochim, now yeah. called that strange name, EUIPO. Yeah, I know. When, when, when was the change? A couple of years ago? Um, the change was probably a couple of years ago in terms of name, yeah. And the reason for the change? Oh, that's a good one. I do not recall what was the reason because I was probably not there anymore. I mean, the, the old name was Office for Harmonization in the Internal Market right. that many people would not understand what it was about. So they decided to move into European Union IP office, which probably makes more sense. But still, they're primarily interested in trademarks. Yeah, I mean, trademarks and designs. Okay. Uh, and what uh, was your role at OHEM? Well, I had several roles. You know, I started as a kind of, you know, uh, examiner on absolute grounds. Uh, then, you know, opposition, so relative grounds. I did some cancellation. I did that for probably, uh, I don't know, perhaps, you know, four or five years. Then uh, there was a new president that came on board and he wanted to create a kind of, you know, quality management department. So, you know, I, I joined that department as a kind of project manager. And this is where I started, you know, being involved in, in management issues. And uh, after some time, I moved into more, you know, international affairs, external relations. And then when uh, Antonio Campinos came on board, you know, I was part of his uh, cabinet and, and he's kind of, you know, head of communications at the time. And how was that? That was a good experience. I mean, you mean Ahim overall, 15 years? No. How was your relationship uh, with the, the latest, the last president you were with? Um, it was uh, it was an interesting relation. Uh, I sort of and his name is Antonio Campinos. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. I think you know he uh, he was he is certainly you know a very smart person, a very passionate, uh, with great ideas. So it was really interesting working with him, beside him, and learning from him. So it was good. Yeah, I had some uh, experience with him and uh, speaking with him, and I was actually impressed with. 
his vitality yeah. and his ideas about things. And mm. you get this feeling almost like he could change the world. Um, and uh, then sometimes with people like that, then they have some problem with implementing the, mm. the things that they want to do. But I actually uh, thought that there's a pretty good chance he was going to get some things done. Uh, and I know he wanted to go and become, I think even then, it wasn't much of a secret, uh, president of the EPO. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, a number of people told me there were political problems with that. Mm -hmm. You have to have this, this, or this, or this. Uh, but then he is now the president of the EPO. Well, I mean, he's, he, he knew what he wanted. Uh, and uh, as I said, I think he's a very smart person. He's he's very political as well. And and for these kind of positions, you need to be very political. You need to manage, you know, interaction with national IP offices. And I think that's something that he's he's really, you know, mastering extremely well. And uh, and I mean, there's no doubt that you know his management at Ahim or EYPO was very successful. I mean, it's not only you know he's not only a person with great ideas, but he was very good at implementing them, and he really made some you know big changes. Well, that's great. All right. So, what caused you to go to Enter? Well, uh, you know, after 15 years at EUIPO, well, that started a little before, you know, I thought, you know, I'd like to, you know, make a change in my career. Uh, I've been working with colleagues uh, for many years, but, you know, I would like to do something else. I was uh, at the time responsible of the relation with, you know, the user associations, as we call them at, uh, at EUIPO. And so I knew the different organizations and I always liked very much INTA. I thought they were very professional. They had very balanced positions. Uh, so I was kind of intrigued by, by uh, that. And uh, the INTA president at the time, or that year, uh, was uh, Gerhard Bauer. Um, and Gerhard, whom I knew well, uh, told me one day, he said, you know, Etienne, I, I would perhaps see you, you know, leading INTA if Alan would retire, uh, Alan Drusen, who's my predecessor. And I think he purposely, you know, he planted the seed. And I started thinking about that. And then, you know, when the position was open, uh, then I decided to apply for the position. And probably, you know, the committee selection at INTA made a mistake and, you know, they decided to hire me. Right. At that point, how long had it been called INTA as opposed to the U.S. Trade Block Association? For quite a few years, uh, I think, you know, um, and, and uh, I think, you know, you, we moved from USTA to INTA probably 2003. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, but I think it's more or less around those dates. And, uh, you know, I moved to INTA in 2013. Okay. Now, let's talk about, uh, before we get started on the... Uh, whole bunch of issues just into itself so it's massive right you have 6,700 organizations that's the figure I got somewhere 30,000 people or members in nearly 200 countries which are probably all the countries in the world almost um, that is an, a massive undertaking for management so how many employees do you have 
So, I mean, let's perhaps, you know, update you on, on numbers because, I mean, thankfully, you know, things are you know, increasing. So currently we are 7,200 organizations between, you know, companies and firms, mm -hmm. which means that in terms of members as individual members, we have 32,000 and from approximately, you know, 190 countries. Now, in terms of staffing, I would say we have around 70 uh, staff. Seven zero. Yeah, seven zero. Uh, split between uh, New York office, which is, you know, our headquarter office. And then we have rep offices in uh, D.C., in Brussels, in Shanghai that we expect to move to Beijing, in Singapore, in Santiago de Chile, and permanent consultants in Geneva and Delhi. And how many people would staff one of those offices? Would it be two, three, four, five? Depends. I mean, a minimum of two uh, but then, for example, you know, the Brussels office has, you know, four permanent staff. And it very much depends on, you know, on our needs from, you know, a lobbying advocacy perspective or simply, you know, to better serve the members. Okay. Uh, so how many years have you been uh, the CEO? Uh, five and a half. So I oh. started on July 1st, 2013. And what would you characterize as... The biggest successes uh, since you're, I mean, it may not be biggest successes, it's only five years, but the, the most positive things that have happened in their five and a half years. Well, I think, you know, the most positive thing has been to, you know, uh, continue the great work that my predecessors have been doing. And I'm not trying to be politically correct. I think it's, it's the truth, you know. Uh, what we've been trying to achieve over the past five years has really been to expand, you know, INTA from a geographical perspective and from a substantive perspective, uh, because the way I see it, you know, we're here to, you know, serve our members first. This is a membership organization. And second, we want to be influential. I mean, basically, I always, you know, say that we have a very simple and at the same time very complex mission, which is to get better laws globally to protect brand owners and to protect consumers. And this is what we're trying to achieve. What if there's a conflict between protecting brand owners and protecting consumers? What do you do then? Or do you not ever see a conflict? Oh yeah, you know, there, there might be, I would say yes and no. You can always find compromises. And this is what we're trying to do. And bear in mind what I told you before about, you know, the thing I liked about INTA is that, you know, it was, it is a very balanced organization. We're never taking the position of one single company. We're never taking the position of one single industry. We're really looking at cross industries and more and more we're looking at protecting consumers as well. Now, multinationals, I would guess, have some influence in the organization because it's so important to them. Would that be true or not? No more than a small company or an SME, uh, of course, you know, they might be more active in the association because they might have, you know, staff in different committees. But from, let's say, a governance perspective, you know, at the board of directors, you know, they're all equally treated and they're all equally represented. And we're not really looking at, you know, the size of the companies when appointing a director to the board. Uh, how many people on your board? 36. Okay. And how long do they serve? So they serve for three years. That's the term. And, you know, there is a rotation so that every year there is one third that is rotating. 
and then out of the board, two-thirds are corporate members and one-third is what we call associate members, so basically law firms. I see. Um, to what extent, if it exists at all, are the multinational member and the small member, is there any conflict between them, what their interests are? Honestly, on the big issues, there are no conflicts. You know, they might have, of course, you know, conflicts among themselves, you know, on a specific brand or, you know, whatever issue. But in terms of, you know, the big IP, not at all. I mean, the issue is all the same. It's, you know, international harmonizations, it's counterfeiting, it's internet, it's brand restrictions, it's anti-IP sentiment, just to name a few. All right. So one of your big challenges now in the digital world, uh, social media maybe tech companies, academics who seem to have gone over to the dark side of the force. Um, and uh, so it, it was a simpler world in the past. And now, almost anything you want to do, there'll be somebody there saying, no, that's this or this or this. So how hard is it now to operate? Well, it, is, it might be harder. But, you know, I would always say that, you know, if you do things with common sense, then it's not that difficult. What is true, and that's, you know, the huge impact of, you know, internet and social media, is that we are, you know, playing on a global world and we're permanently public. Provided you know that and you keep that in mind, if you behave properly, you're going to be okay. But it's more than behaving properly. You have to get your, and this is, you know, IP owners from day one are fine about IP and everything, but public relations is not uh, something they're used to or probably even want to do, uh, whereas critics of IP are actually very, very good at it. So to some extent, you have to present the other position, uh, and I guess you do that. Well, no, I think you're totally right. And, and this is one of the things that we're trying to achieve at INTA, which is somehow to, if I may, educate our members on the fact that they cannot be anymore just, you know, trademark lawyers or IP lawyers. In fact, you know, as an association, we decided a few years ago to somehow shift our messaging and talk on brands instead of talking about trademarks. Because, you know, companies talk about brands. You know, they deal with brands. They do not deal with trademarks. And what we would like to see is that our members, and particularly thinking about, you know, the in-house, the corporate people, they speak the same language as their colleagues within companies. And that means that they need to be able to interact with them. And that means that, you know, the PR people need to understand somehow IP. And the IP professionals need to understand the uh, implications, the interactions that the PR people are going to have. And is that working? I think it's working. I think in terms of, you know, what we are trying to offer as kind of, you know, conferences, as kind of webcast, you know, as kind of content, we're getting there. Now, in terms of languages, uh, you know, what, four or five? Four. Four. Uh, and then, of course, obviously with 180 to 200 Companies in uh, how many how many countries are? One hundred and ninety. Yeah. Um, 
So what language on a day-to-day basis are you speaking to people when you travel or whatever? You go into a different country speaking Spanish, you're speaking French, or is the working language effectively English? No, well, I would say, you know, the, the working language, you know, uh, is, is English, no doubt about that. But of course, you know, when you're traveling to uh, different countries and I try to travel, you know, significantly to, to kind of, you know, promote what we are, you know, trying to promote, I try as much as possible to use the local language. Um, There are several reasons for that. First, you know, you want to be polite and diplomatic to the people who are hosting you. And second, you're going to get much more uh, attention, particularly from the policymakers, if you're able to speak their own language. So I'll give you an example. You know, uh, INTA was not particularly strong in Latin America and were kind of perceived like, you know, promoting, you know, the big U.S. corporations. And just by, you know, shifting language, being able to develop some content in Spanish, you know, going to those countries speaking Spanish, you know, we're seeing, you know, positive reactions. We're getting more attention. And this is exactly what we want. You know, basically, uh, INTA, and you were asking me that before, you know, what has somehow changed? Well, one of the things that has changed is that in the past, we did interact a lot with IP offices but we're not really able to go perhaps beyond that. And now the approach we're following is that, you know, the IP office is the kind of entry door to get to the administration and to get to the policymakers. Because ultimately the ones who are, you know, drafting the laws are the policymakers, not the IP offices. So then you're dealing with legislatures. Yes, we do. And... Then I suppose, especially, you might have to be speaking the language of the country, right? That's correct. Judges? Somehow. In most, it depends on the countries, you know. In some countries, you know, judges would speak English, but the majority of countries, they do not. And when you speak to them, is it broadly about, okay, this is policy, or do you have actually something specific in mind that you would like them to enact, or both? Both. What we never do, we never talk about a specific case of, you know, uh, either, you know, a court case or, you know, an issue with an IP office. You know, again, we're not looking at, you know, a single company or a single industry, but we rather look at, you know, big policy issues, legislative changes or concerns we might have. Okay. And I take it your board comes from a whole bunch of different countries. Absolutely. So are they then helping if you go into a country? Do they? yeah. They do. I mean, basically, you know, we're we're a membership-driven organization. We're a committee-driven organization. So, you know, we are kind of, you know, split in uh, three groups. So we have the advocacy group, we have the resources group, we have the communications group. Each of those groups has a set of committees. And in total, uh, we have more than 100, 120 committees, subcommittees, uh, looking at all kind of issues that are, you know, IP-related. Mostly trademarks, but going beyond that. And so when we meet with, you know, the legislators, we, of course, you know, get the feedback from the relevant committees. And then when meeting the policymakers, we make sure that we have either the local industry or the local, you know, leaders of the association that are part of that. So, yes, you know, our local directors or regional directors would participate in those meetings as much as they can. an incredible amount of work and communication, it is a lot of work, you know, from a staff perspective, but it's also a lot of time 
from our members. And and if I may, I think we should really recognize that you know the success of INTA is just thanks to the members. Oh, so is that you 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 prefer INTA to Inter? I don't mind either way. Because you know WIPO, you for years you were not allowed to say the WIPO. Okay. You had to say WIPO, and now okay. I guess people are actually saying it. But so you it's. I can say it either way and you're okay. Absolutely. We're not going to give any instructions to anyone about whether you want to say INTA or INTA. It's totally fine. Okay. You have a president. How, how long does the president serve? So it's a, it's a, it's a yearly, it's an annual term. Uh, so the president is appointed, you know, let's say starting, you know, January 1st until, you know, December 31st. What happens is that, you know, in order to become president, the year before you've been president-elect, and before that, you've been first, second vice president, treasury, and secretary, which means that there is a kind of, you know, six years uh, in order to become president, which is great since, you know, it really allows, you know, the president to be aware of, you know, <coughs> what the association is doing. So how do, you be, how do you get in this train to be president? Well, basically what happens, you know, we have, as I mentioned to you, we have, you know, our committees. And as part of that, we have a set of, you know, board committees. And the board committees are composed by members of the board of directors. And among those, we have, of course, the executive committee that is serving when the board is not meeting. We have a nominating committee. We have a planning committee. We have a finance audit committee, etc. The role of the nominating committee every year is to identify and select who are going to be the committee chairs, vice chairs, who are, you know, the potential appointees to the board of directors, and also to identify, you know, candidates to become officers. Once you become an officer, then, you know, year after year, you're going to be moving up the rank from secretary to treasurer to second vice president, first vice president, and president-elect. And that means you have, you know, good five years to really understand better the insight of the association. Five years to go bankrupt in their practice. If you have, how much do you demand of these people in terms of time? Well, in terms of time, uh, that means uh, particularly, you know, as an officer, you will be attending, you know, four board meetings mm -hmm. and you will get prepared for that, which means, you know, really reading the materials and, and getting ready. Uh, you will be participating in a monthly executive committee call. And quite often, you know, they're part of, you know, either a committee or a task force. So it does represent a significant amount of time. And this is why, you know, we need to be extremely thankful to all of them because that's, you know, it's, it's a volunteer time. All right. Someone becomes president for one year. Uh, how much do you interact with the president? Is it, my guess is, you have a pretty agenda in mind already. You're not talking to the president about what should we do this year. You pretty much know what you want to do that year, correct? Absolutely. In fact, you know, we have, uh, we are driven by our strategic plan. And, and now we're on our 2018-2021 strategic plan. And the strategic plan is followed by an implementation plan. This is something that is discussed in advance, you know, by the planning committee. Uh, together with president and myself, is then approved by the board of directors together with the implementation plan. And this is what is guiding what we are doing. So basically, I would say nothing comes, you know, from scratch. I mean, there is a good reason for things to happen. All right. So this four-year plan, it has 
mechanical things like where we're going to be on our annual meeting and uh, committee heads and things along those lines, but also what are you going to do in terms of the roles and goals of INTA? Uh, I'm used to saying it, so I'm going to ask. So it, how different is your four-year plan that just finished, I guess, in, I don't know, 17 or 17. something like that? And and this one, is it, while now we're going to do actually more daring and other stuff, or it's more of its continuation of what we've done in the past? I would say it's a natural evolution of what we've been doing in the past. You know, if there was a big, you know, gap between two strategic plans or if there were any kind of contradictions, that would mean that, you know, something is going wrong. And instead, you know, what we're trying to do is be permanently evolving, looking, you know, forward, projecting ourselves into the future. And this is what really helps us to be, you know, naturally evolving. Just one point that you made before, you know, our strategic plan is not really looking into operational issues. For example, you know, where are we going to be going in terms of the annual meeting in four years from now? You know, that's already, I mean, it's, it's taken for granted. I mean, there is a process for that. And we know that, you know, it's going to be two years in North America and the third year is going to be outside U.S. And that's something that we already approved a few years ago. And of course, you know, when we're looking at, you know, future venues, we do that well in advance. There is a kind of due diligence exercise, and that's being approved by the board of directors. But it's not really part of the strategic plan. The strategic plan is really about, you know, the strategy of the association, the vision of the association for the future. Um, you, you said you had 32,000 members, which yeah. is incredible. How many of those are U.S. people? Um, so I would say 40% are North America, and 60% are from outside North America. Uh, which is becoming, you know, a more and more balanced. And in fact, you know, that is even, you know, growing in the sense that, you know, the non-North America is, is growing. Uh, now, in terms of companies, we still have more U.S. companies than, you know, companies from the rest of the world. Why is that? I think there is a cultural reason. I think, you know, companies in the U.S. and Canada, but certainly in the U.S., do understand better, you know, the benefit of being part of an association. That's one at a company level. And at an individual level, I think people here are more inclined to volunteer than they're elsewhere. And that's a big difference. And why is that, do you think? I think it's part of the culture. It's part of the education. It's the idea that you need to bring back to, the, uh, to society on the one side. And it's also the fact that that really helps you build your career. And I think that's, you know, something that professionals outside U.S. perhaps do not understand as well as, you know, uh, the Americans, Canadians do understand. Do you ever find that you have people, uh, Spain and France and whatever, actually resent some of the U.S. participation as, no? No. <coughs> no, I think, you know, first... I think everybody acknowledged that, you know, INTA started as USTA and everybody's understanding that INTA is doing an effort to become more global. And what we're trying from an association perspective is to always find that balance. And while we want to be more global, we absolutely acknowledge and recognize the importance of being very strong in the U.S., 
And that's why, you know, we decided a few years ago to have a kind of, you know, permanent presence in D.C. Uh, and that's why we were, for example, able to put together the Congressional Trademark Caucus here, which I think is extremely important. And it's also the reason why, you know, despite me not being, you know, American, I'm always, you know, very supportive of our PAC. And this is extremely important in the U.S. And if we want to be successful globally, we need to make sure that we're also successful domestically here in the U.S. You're not American, but you're almost becoming American by <laughs> osmosis to some extent, uh, if I may say that. And that wasn't meant as an insult. Uh, uh, no, no, not at all. I like that sentence. I yeah, like it. Yeah. I think uh, it's nice. Well, I see. Well, one is I'm really intrigued with the Congressional Caucus. I know you have 16, 17, and what, Grassley is sort of the head of it? There are four of them. Yeah, who are the four? Huh. So I'm Grassley, uh, Coons, and and then you will excuse me for the other two. Okay. Now, so basically, we have you know it's 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 great because it's it's really you know bicameral, bipartisan. So you know we have two members of Congress, so I mean, two members of House of Representatives, two from the Senate, uh, two Republicans, and two Democrats. When we started, we just had you know four you know the four co-chairs, and uh, today we have more than thirty members. Uh, that are part of the caucus. And what is really extremely encouraging is the fact that, you know, initially we were the ones, you know, suggesting the briefings, but now it's kind of, you know, going the other way around where we get called and, you know, we would like INTA to brief us on whatever. That's great. Now, of course, all right, what do you, just, just between you and me, what do you think of Trump? <laughs> No, forget it. Uh, not just between you and me. Does uh, does actually the administration? I mean, I you know I happen to think it, he's pathetic, but I have to say an IP. It's pretty good if if you're in favor of IP. Uh, I mean, they're uh, head of the PTO, head of the antitrust division, both people who are supportive of IP. Um, and uh, the one thing, I mean, uh, is not going into the TPP was a, was absolutely ridiculous. But overall, and you're looking you're looking for countries with support. Where would you put the U.S. in terms of support for trademarks and IP right now on a governmental level? Pretty high, no doubt about that. And, you know, if that was your question, I would agree with you. Um, you know, I mentioned before, kind of en passant, that there, there is an issue of anti- Oh, no, that, that's a, a that's a French. Phrase. That's yes. a French name, which I, means you know, just, know just as a kind of side... But just for our audience, <laughs> I'd like you to explain it. Okay, that. absolutely. So as a kind of side comment, you know, I mentioned before anti-IP sentiment. This is something that we're not facing here in the US. And I think we've never really faced that, but certainly, you know, with the Trump administration, I mean, they're very pro-IP, which is certainly a good thing. Now, internationally, you know, we don't have a similar scenario. Some countries are more pro-IP, but in many countries, they're strongly, you know, or not strongly, but they're kind of, you know, against IP, and this is a concern to us. And by the way, you know, when we're talking about IP, I always, you know, say that IP does not uh, understand about politics. And we, you know, no matter who's, you know, leading a country, 
no matter the color of the government, you know, IP remains IP and is extremely important for the economy and for the society. Well, I think actually internationally, to some extent, and this is understandable, if a country is net exporting of IP, they tend to be for IP, but if they're net importing of IP, they'll be not as supportive, especially since that usually increases the prices for their consumers. So how do you tell a country that is net importing that actually IP is good for them? Well, you know, it might not be, you know, directly good for the economy in terms of, you know, manufacturers, but licensing industry, consumer protection, uh, safety, that's extremely important. And So and you don't want counterfeit things, you're going to get the wrong drugs and all that. Yeah. For example. And that's one of the big issues we have at the moment. I mean, you know, not to talk about, you know, plain packaging and, you know, we prefer to talk about brand restrictions. But, you know, when you see how things are going and, you know, some of the positions that are being taken by some governments and some administrations, it's kind of concerning because, you know, it's not about, you know, we're going to be protecting our consumers. It's we're going to, you know, simply remove that because these are the big multinationals that are making too much money. Well, yes, but, you know, these multinationals are paying their taxes. Mm. And this is what allows you to have, you know, a health system or a public education system. So, you know, they should not forget that. Yeah. Well, it's easy, I think, with the tobacco. It's hard to be for tobacco these days. And so that's what was behind uh, uh, the on-branding of tobacco products, where they can just have the name. But it seems that people are then jumping on that and then want to expand that. And that's really, if you could probably live with tobacco never being branded, but it's expanding to other things that they don't like or is not politically correct or something else. And that, of course, is worrisome. Well, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we, you know, we don't like, I don't like to talk about a specific industry. This is not about tobacco and I'm not, you know, either pro or against tobacco, but... It's not yet proven that, you know, removing the trademarks is, you know, as effective as, you know, one would imagine. That's the first point. And second, what is really concerning is, you know, the expansion that we're seeing going from tobacco to alcoholic beverages to infant formula to who knows. Yeah. And, you know, I was recently, you know, myself being half French, half Spanish, you know, you know, GIs are very strong there. I said, what about if we start seeing, you know, plain packaging on French cheese or on champagne. Well, my view about GIs and a French one, when they stopped believing in God, they replaced it with GIs as a, as a <laughs> national religion. Um, all right, I was going to say, so now we have, you say the U.S. has never been anti, but we had... SOPA, we had PIPA, uh, PIPA, where those died because of tremendous social media and, for that matter, academics against it. Uh, what can you, is, could that happen again tomorrow? Or is there some way to prevent it or at least fight against it? I think it could happen again. And Hugh, you and I are good friends. You're an academic. And, uh, and I look at that, you know, from the outside. And... I'm sometimes surprised to see that even IP academics are sometimes a little, you know, uh, strong 
in their positions against IP. And that, to me, is kind of concerning. Because, you know, yes, of course, you know, there are some positions that are taken by companies that are excessive. That is true. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the entire industry or the entire sector is not relevant to the economy and is not doing good to the society. And that's something that is kind of, you know, forgotten. You mentioned before about, you know, the U.S. I think we need to make a difference between when you were referring to Pipa Sopa. I think we need to make a difference between, you know, our legislators, our leaders and society at large. I would say in the U.S., that's at least my experience, you know, our legislators and certainly, you know, the leadership we have at the moment is pro-IP. Now, if you go to society at large, that might not be the same story. And then, of course, you know, we're not going to get into technicalities, but, you know, there is a difference between, you know, trademarks, between patents, between copyrights, et cetera, et cetera. But quite often, you know, society is not really, when I mean society, I mean the individual, the individual is not really understanding the implications of IP. And this is where perhaps we all have a responsibility in terms of trying to educate on, you know, the positive contribution of IP. And this is one of the things that to us is extremely important as an INTA. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And it's interesting about IP's uh, people in academia. Um, when I came through the, you know, became an academic, almost everybody that was doing IP were wannabe creators. So I wanted to be a novelist, someone else did this, and that sort of drew, drew us the copyright or trademarks or whatever. And we actually believed in it. But now what happens is the people who are going in academia um, are coming from the tech side. Mm -hmm. And the tech side views it as uh, the ghost in the machine. It works perfectly. Then all of a sudden IP doesn't let us copy completely in this. And, and actually IP is the enemy. So it's almost an emotional issue uh, which somehow gets into uh, or strongly held position to how they view IP. And actually, U.S. academics, I think, are the most puzzled by trademarks. Uh, and because it's more than a source identifier, it's a tremendously protection of goodwill. And that's a, the trouble getting the mind around. Uh, but on that sense, IP people, including me, are less influential than when I first came in. When I clerked in the Southern District and Second Circuit, I had my judge, judges I clerked for would occasionally look up what the professors say about this or this. That, that's not happening anymore. Um, and uh, largely because I think a lot of academics are more now speaking to other academics than speaking uh, to the world. And as a result of that, the world is thinking it's less relevant, uh, which I think is on unfortunate because, you know, academics are very smart, very good, and I would like to see them having more uh, interaction with the real world. But in any case, um, get back to... But, but if I may, Hugh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I would say is that IP is to a certain extent as well a way to recognize work, effort, creativity. And if we're not able to recognize that, if we're not able to value that, then what's going to be the reason to, you know, be creative, 
develop things, work hard. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, you know, by having, you know, some kind of IP protection, it does help consumers to, you know, decide what they're going to be buying, yeah. what they're going to be choosing. And I think that's a message that we need, you know, again, you know, I think our legislators here do understand that, but I'm not sure whether, you know, public opinion understands that. And I think that's a concern. Yeah. Yeah, well, we could go further into this, but I think uh, maybe we should. Well, one of the thing about academics is most of them want their stuff copied for nothing. They want distribution. So the idea of protection, even if the publisher wants to protect it, they don't want to protect it because the most important thing, understandably, is get people to get their points of view. So what they come from is personally an angle of it hasn't been important. Um, so that, that doesn't help. But in any case, let's move on. Now, part of your plan, I read here, is a new website. What's going on with that? <laughs> it's going to take some additional time. I mean, we're in, in, in the middle of what we call the digital transformation. Um, and that means, of course, you know, we want to have a new website. But, you know, beyond that, we want to have a better internal architecture and we want to make sure that we have you know the right legal resources for you know the benefit of our members it's it's quite a big project it's a project that is going to take probably you know more than a year and uh, and again you know if you look at how you know we're all behaving we're all on our cell phones we're all on the mobile devices so you know we need to you know provide content that is adapted to that and we also need to start thinking, you know, how the future will look like. You know, our conferences, I'm always saying that, you know, our conferences seem to be very successful in terms of attendance. Our meetings seem to be really going well. But what if something changes and how we get prepared to that? And the reality is that, you know, we used to sit at a conference, listen for one hour, and now our, as individuals, you know, our ability to, you know, listen is reduced. We're just listening for, you know, perhaps, you know, five minutes out of 60, 60 minutes. So we need to understand that. And that means that, you know, we need to capture the attention of our members. We need to capture the attention of the general public. I mean, the website, as we see it, you know, is going to be mostly for our members or non-members, but certainly the IP professionals. I would say probably, you know, 80% of that. But there is a 20% that should be, you know, for, you know, perhaps, you know, specialized, non-specialized media for the general public. And, and we need to look at that as well. And if one of our goals is to enhance consumer protection and educate the general public, we should bear that in mind. Yeah, that's great. And also, maybe when you're done, you can help us with our inst IP Institute uh, website, uh, which could use a lot of help. Uh, all right, so I see here you want a robust strategy for the Unreal campaign to engage teens. What is the Unreal campaign? I've never even heard of it. Well, the Unreal campaign is to try to educate teenagers on um, the positive side of IP, the positive contribution of IP, and the risks of buying counterfeits. And so it's, it's a campaign that we started already a few years ago that has proven to be very successful, but we want to go beyond that. And it has, you know, kind of, you know, two chapters. On the one side, it's in-person 
meetings, sessions at schools. And on the other side, it's, you know, using social media. And really here the idea, you know, I, I had uh, the, uh, the chance to, you know, attend some of these sessions. I remember one in Colombia. Soccer is big in Colombia. So uh, we had a private investigator talking to the kids about, you know, what were, you know, the original devices versus the fakes, you know, looking at, you know, the soccer shirts of some famous players. And you could see that the kids were really interested by that. And they were really asking questions and they were trying to understand that. Once you capture their attention, then you can explain, you know, what are the risks of counterfeits and what is the positive impact of IP. And hopefully these kids, they're going to get home and they're going to perhaps, you know, tweet. They're going to perhaps text some friends or simply at home, they're going to be talking to their families and they're going to say, hey, listen what I heard today. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Why do you call it unreal? Well, because it's, you know, trying to, you know, versus the real products, the unreal products. Oh, I got so it. that okay. was, you know, the kind of catchy okay. name that was suggested to us at the time. And this is why we continue using it. Okay. All right. China. Uh, I know uh, that's something that's in your uh, future and you've done a number of things with them. Um, so, and I think you've met with people in Beijing and other um, what role, are they a positive force for trademarks? Are they a problem? Uh, what's going on with China? Well, I think it would be perhaps, if I may, a, a simplistic answer on my side to say, you know, they're a problem or they're a solution. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, they've been a problem for many years. We all know that, and they themselves, they acknowledge that. Uh, has there been improvements from a trademark perspective, definitely yes. Are these enough considering, you know, the volume of trade that China is moving? Probably not. Um, we have, as I mentioned to you, we have a rep office in China, in Shanghai. We're going to move that office to Beijing. We at least organize... Why are you moving it to Beijing? Well, because, you know, uh, at the time we opened that office, you know, the business was more in Shanghai. Uh, and, you know, the Chinese government was not that open. Since then, things have changed, and we think it makes more sense to be closer to the government, to the officials. We, twice a year, we organize delegations to China. Uh, there, we normally meet with the uh, Chinese. Well, the names have changed now. It's uh, CNIPA, uh, but it used to be the SIPO. Uh, uh, and uh, so we, we used to meet an SAIC. So we used to meet with the Chinese trademark office with the kind of, you know, the appeal uh, with uh, the People's Supreme Court, with the specialized IP courts, the three of them in China, uh, with the IP associations. I would say that we have a, a very strong interaction uh, with uh, the government, with the specialized agencies. Uh, we are able to share, you know, our concerns. They're clearly on listening mode, and there are definitely things that have improved. But again, I mean, there's still a lot of improvement that needs to take place. Well, I've had some interaction with uh, uh, China and the Supreme Court, and uh, actually uh, a small delegation came to Fordham when we were talking about copyright in the digital arena. Uh, and I think actually the, the law they came up with is similar more to the U.S. than others. Uh, and I was just over there uh, over 
the holidays and met with the brand new court in a pallet specialized IP court with broad jurisdiction. And all members are very excited about that. Uh, so I have found the IP infrastructure very supportive on a number of grounds. But in China, you have the party, you have the military, you have precincts out there where the local leader controls what the courts do. So it's actually uh, a difficult issue probably to affect change because there's so many different people who have their hand in on it. Absolutely. But I'm going to give you an example. You know, uh, you know, being half French, half Spanish, you know, Spain now is a country of, you know, brands of manufacturers. 50 years ago, you know, it was a country of counterfeiters. And, you know, Spain is smaller than California. And it took us 50 years to, <laughs> to clean the house. So imagine China, you know, being able to clean the house. It takes, you know, many, many years. We have seen progress. Uh, we think there is still a lot that needs to happen, but I'm going to give you another concrete example. You know, every, I would say every year, every other year, we visit, you know, Chinese People's Supreme Court, IP section. We meet with the chief IP judge, and he and his team are very interested in listening, you know, what foreign industry has to say. We, of course, you know, we no, do not discuss specific cases, but, for example, when there, were, there was the issue of bad faith, you know, registrations, we were perfectly fine, you know, comfortable talking about those issues. They were interested, they were listening, they were asking questions. And they do ask, you know, on occasions, they do ask INTA to provide, you know, report and opinion on, you know, how we see the other jurisdictions doing. And we are very pleased that we're invited to submit comments every time there is a change in their legislation. So things are going better. That's great. Now, to what extent, just in trademark law, the various countries you visit, how much of it is pretty much the same? And, and to what extent is any, you go to a country and they're doing something differently than, let's say, the U.S. does or someone else does? Or is it pretty much on the same basis? Well, I think generally speaking, you know, it's, it's pretty much on the same basis. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we're trying to achieve as an association is to have, you know, as much international harmonization as possible. And that means, you know, we would like, you know, as many countries to be part of the Madrid Protocol of the Hague Agreement. Uh, when this is not possible, we would like to see at least some kind of harmonization in terms of, you know, their internal practices, their internal guidelines. Because, you know, the cost of filing for a company is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, filings should be a commodity. The added value of IP and IP professionals is not in the filing. It's in the strategy that goes behind that. And that is something that we should be changing. And the thing that INTA is advocating for is, you know, we want, you know, strong registration systems that are easy, that are predictable, that are consistent. And then we want to have strong enforcement mechanisms. Well, why wouldn't a country adopt the Madrid Protocol because it's not expensive to do so and it's certainly a value to its citizens. It is a value to its citizens. I mean, you don't need to convince me. You know, I'm convinced about that. But, you know, um, I think part of that is uh, sometimes... The Madrid Protocol allows you to file some registration. It's in, the international registration. And then it, it gets duplicated in a gazillion yeah. things. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, 
of course, you know, the industry is very interested, particularly, you know, the foreign industry to a specific country would be very interested that that country is part of the Madrid Protocol and the Madrid Agreement. Uh, now, what happens is, you know, on occasions, you know, the professionals in that specific country, you know, they've been used to, you know, do a certain kind of work. They're very comfortable with that. And we all as human beings, you know, we don't like disruption. And that is part of the problem. Now, what is true as well is as a country, you know, it will only be interesting. I'm, I'm taking, you know, the position of a, of a legislator or a policymaker. You know, it will only be, uh, it will only make sense to be part of the Madrid Protocol if my neighboring countries are part of the Madrid Protocol. So, yes, I'm giving a benefit to the foreign industry to access my market, but then I want to make sure that, you know, my companies can benefit from the same kind of, you know, yeah. uh, advantages in other jurisdictions. And that's part of the problem, for example, in Latin America. You know, the moment we'll have some of the major economies, you know, joining Madrid Protocol, all the others will follow. Yeah, and there's also the thing in Europe, for instance, in the EU, where you can have an EU trademark or you can have a national trademark. And the EU trademark is financially makes sense if you're going to file in a number of countries. Uh, but what you have is a group of people who have made a living out of that national country's trademarks. And that national country gets a lot of money from that trademark office. And then they see the EU trademark actually is a competitor that will reduce work for these people and reduce income. And so you see some countries, like Hungary and some others, which have been actively interpreting the law so that this European trademark law would not work in their country or something else. So to some extent, you have infrastructures. I don't know how many times I'm going to use that word in this, but uh, that actually their bread and butter is, is threatened, and you're saying that to some extent is true also with Madrid Protocol. Yeah, somehow. I think, you know, it's it's a kind of a similar and at the same time different situation. Talking about, you know, Europe, I think, you know, um, the, the community trademark or the European Union trademark and the national trademarks, you know, should not be in competition, you know, because it very much depends on, you know, your needs as a company. You know, if you're only going to be, you know, operating in one or two countries, you better take the national route. I mean, one should not forget that when you're filing for a community trademark or a European Union trademark, you know, you might get opposed from, you know, 28 member states. And so, you know, potentially you have more risks. So I think it's up to the company to think, you know, what really makes sense. Now, the other part of the equation is, yes, you know, what is the interaction between EU IPO and the national IP offices? There should be more cooperation, real, serious, long-term, forward-thinking cooperation beyond just cooperation projects. That's one. And then there is the issue of, you know, what is the role of an IP office and whether the IP offices should be financially independent or not. In most countries today, the IP offices are a source of revenue. And because of that, you know, the general administration wants to, you know, put their hands on that. So there are many things that need to be taken into account. For one thing, it's just the European 
based trademark could share some of its revenue with the national offices, which probably would remove a lot of the, the problem. Um, but uh, in any case, it's an interesting situation that you're facing in many places in the world. Uh, is there anything uh, that we have not covered that you would actually like to cover? Because I know you have to... It's been almost an amazing <laughs> close to one hour, hasn't it? And for those who can only sit still for five or six minutes, I would hope that you would actually listen to the whole podcast because I've been very interested in and very thankful for Etienne's uh, participation, which I think on a number of levels has been very interesting and instructive. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Hugh. I mean, it's... Uh... I am the one who should thank you for inviting me. And, you know, today is for kind of the audience, if I may, this is just, you know, kind of, you know, repetition of, you know, different conversations you and I have had on a regular basis. And uh, I personally take a lot of pleasure, you know, uh, talking to you and learning from you. And and uh, no, honestly, and, and I really want to thank you for that. And thank, you know, the, the Ford and IP Institute for everything you're doing, which is great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. This episode was recorded on January 25th, 2019.